And I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 this morning. Matthew 12. As we continue our study together through the Gospel of Matthew, I want to just sort of orient us again to the text. Uh, The passage for today follows the account of two confrontations that Jesus had had with the Pharisees. And of course, you remember that both of those confrontations had to do do with the Sabbath or the law and the interpretation of the Sabbath law. And remember who it is that these Pharisees are arguing with. They're arguing with the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath. And yet, they are so self-righteous as to believe that They only have a righteousness with God. And uh, they are arguing with the one who created the Sabbath in the first place. They're arguing with their creator and Lord. And yet verse 14 ends this way in in the end of chapter 11. It says that they, uh, I'm sorry, uh, in chapter 12, it says that they went out and conspired against him to destroy him. Now think about that. They went out and conspired against him to destroy him. Him who breathed their lives into existence. Who could call the earth to open up and swallow them whole down into hell. And yet look what he does. Verse number 15. Jesus aware of this withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. And then Matthew says this, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now in his telling of the good news, Matthew has presented Jesus by many titles. He's the promised king and the son of David. David, who is the the, the son of David, who's the the heir of the everlasting covenant that God made with his forefather. Jesus, in the gospel of Matthew, is the new lawgiver, the new Moses, who interprets God's law for his people on the mountain. He is the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased. He is the Lord who alone opens and closes the door that lets you into the kingdom of heaven. He's the Son of Man who's exalted to the right hand of God. He's the Son of God with authority over all of the natural and spiritual realms. He is the groom who's come to claim his bride. He's the shepherd who's come to gather his sheep 
He's the master who calls his disciples to follow him wherever he will go. He's the prophet who pronounces woes upon wickedness. He is the greater priest of the greater temple. All of these things, Matthew wants us to see. Jesus is the culmination. He is the end of all of the revelation of God up to that point. But there's something that happens in the text here that we're reading about that reminds Matthew that Jesus is the fulfillment of probably the most prominent title or figure in the entire prophecy of Isaiah. And that, of course, is that prophecy of the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. We read a number of those this morning. Now, let me start this way. What's a servant for? Why? What makes a good servant? Why does somebody have a servant? Well, a servant is there to do the bidding of his master. And a servant who is a good servant is one who obeys his master's wishes well. A bad servant is one who does poorly. You know, he, he hesitates. He's half-hearted. He quits when the job is hard. He's unreliable. He's ineffective. The Lord uses the imagery of His servant. Now, we know God has many servants. In fact, we would say that every created thing, every created being is, in some sense, the servant of God. The the winds are His messengers and His servants, right? He he causes the seas to do His bidding. They know His voice. The animals are His creatures. The greatest of kings, even pagan kings, are in some sense His servants. But the prophecy of Isaiah is very particular in several places in talking about this great servant that the Lord would raise up to do His will. 19 times, in fact, from Isaiah chapter 40, which is a major turning point in Isaiah's prophecy. 19 times from chapter 40 to chapter 53, we have a reference to the servant of the Lord, the Lord's servant. And so, as I mentioned earlier, they're sometimes called the servant songs, these poetic uh, prophecies of the servant. One uh, of the most helpful places in identifying this servant is Isaiah 49. So perhaps hold your finger here and just flip back once again, if you didn't earlier or or now now again, uh, to chapter 49 and take a look at that part of Isaiah's prophecy. I say that's particularly helpful in identifying the, the, the servant. And there is, we see in the prophecies of the servant, a tension. Because on one hand, the servant of the Lord is identified with Israel. So you see in verse 3 of that text in Isaiah 49, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So on the one hand, the servant is identified with Israel. But on the other hand, verse 5, he is distinct from Israel. 
The servant speaks here in the singular. He says, the Lord, verse 5, the Lord formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. You see how it seems that the servant here is now distinct from Israel. And these work together in this way. What Israel desperately needed was a kind of hero, a kind of person to go out on their behalf, who was identified with them, and yet who was greater than them, someone who could bring them back to God, because for certain, by and large, the nation of Israel had grown cold to God. They'd grown hard to God. They'd, they'd become blind to His ways and deaf to His Word. Um, in fact, he goes on and says that in verse 19, "...who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear." Israel, who was supposed to be God's servant, a nation to do His will in the earth, to proclaim His glory, had hardened themselves to where they were blind and deaf to their Lord. They were a poor and miserable servant. They needed a hero who both embodied them but who also obeyed on their behalf. One who obeyed on behalf of all of them. Kind of like David, who went out into the field of battle while all of the Israelites stood on the sidelines, fearful, who would represent them in battle. All of their fate rested on his shoulders as their representative. They needed someone who was identified with them and yet who could, who could win for them where in, their, in the middle of their weakness. That hero in Isaiah's prophecy is that singular servant of the Lord. He was both that pure Israel or that true Israel who would stand before God on their behalf and he would stand before God for all of Israel. Let me say it this way. If the servant of the Lord is not identified with Israel, with the people of God, then he can't obey for Israel. But if the servant is not distinct from Israel then he is guilty along with Israel and cannot act as an intermediary between God and Israel. So this tension and this mystery in the prophecy of Isaiah about this figure who would obey before God, who would be victorious, but not for himself alone, he would stand for all His people. That's the way this prophecy works. So Israel waited for their great 
Messiah, the servant of the Lord, their hero, their holy representative Israelite. And now, back to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, as he recounts the reaction of the Pharisees here in Matthew chapter 12, he is reminded that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that Isaiah had said about that servant of the Lord. And the trigger or the cue in this text that brought all of this to his mind again is the recounting of Jesus' withdrawal from confrontation and self-promotion. We read in Matthew Again, 12, verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, that is, aware of the conspiracies of the Jews to kill him, he withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them. But then it says this strange thing, he ordered them not to make him known. This, Matthew says, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And the part that corresponds with the part, uh, the, the, the actions that Jesus does, that they correspond with the part of Isaiah's prophecy in particular that is recorded in verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets, right? And also, perhaps to a lesser extent, with regard to the healing of broken people all around him, when Isaiah's prophecy said, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. So those... Actions of Jesus remind Matthew that Jesus is the fulfillment of, of, of the servant motif all throughout the prophecy of Isaiah. And then Matthew goes on to quote it, but notice he doesn't just quote the part that has to do with removing himself from controversy and, and not being a self-promoter. He quotes the whole little section, verses 1 to 4 of Isaiah 49, to cue us in, clue us into the fact that Jesus is not just the fulfillment of some little particular line in the Old Testament, but the fact that Jesus in everything that he did was very apparently the fulfillment of all that God said about the coming Messiah and all that Isaiah prophesied about this great servant of the Lord. So there's a cue or a trigger that brings these prophecies back to Matthew's mind, but it has to do with more than just the immediate trigger. It has to do with the whole of the prophecy. In fact, we are meant to think of everything that Isaiah chapters 40 through 53 reveal about Jesus when we read of our Lord's Um, reaction here to the Pharisees and to the crowds who were being healed. However, Matthew highlights here seven great characteristics of the servant of the Lord as they're found in the prophecy of Isaiah. And that's what I want you to see now. These seven wonderful characteristics of our Savior, of our Messiah, of the servant of Jehovah. Number one, he is chosen by God. The prophecy begins this way, if you're in Matthew and his quotation of it, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Now that idea of God choosing 
a man goes back into the roots of the Old Testament. The first time the word is ever used is in Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew, in uh, Genesis chapter 18. When Abraham is chosen from among the heathen, Joshua 24 verse 2 says that Abram and his family were idolaters in the land of Ur, but God chose them out, called them to himself out of the world. Then God chose to continue blessing Abraham's family through his own supernatural grace. Remember that Abraham and uh, Abraham had a son named Ishmael uh, and had that son through human ingenuity. God had promised Abraham a son. It didn't seem like the promise was happening, so they took uh, their slave girl and brought her into Abraham and by her had a son, Ishmael, but God did not choose Ishmael. God rather chose to bless Abraham and Sarah with a supernatural birth. That is a birth that was clearly um, an unusual work of God in that they were both uh, beyond childbearing capacity. This is the way God's choice is being played out and worked out in the unfolding of the Old Testament history. God further demonstrated that he was sovereign in how he chose to show mercy by choosing Jacob. That is Isaac's son, Isaac's younger son, over Esau, Isaac's older son. And that choice was made before they were even born, before they had made any choices. In order to demonstrate that God's grace... God doesn't choose anyone based on seeing what good choice He will make. In fact, left to ourselves, the Bible teaches us that there is... How many of us seek after God? There is none of us that seeks after God. Jacob's 12 sons then become the chosen people, right? We call them the chosen people, God's, God's people. And yet, of course, many of them proved to be enemies of God. We read Isaiah's condemnation, our Lord's condemnation during his day. So many of Israel were blind to God, were deaf to his word. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 9 that not all who are descended from Israel are really Israel. Right? Many are called, but few are chosen. But Isaiah says that God will send the one who is the embodiment of Israel, that singular chosen one who will stand in the place of the chosen people. And in him, and only in him, will the people of God be the chosen people. That is that only in union with Christ are any of us God's elect, are any of us God's peculiar possession. This is the one singular servant who was God's chosen one. We are chosen by grace. But He was chosen, and this is the second characteristic Matthew highlights in quoting the Old Testament prophecy, he was chosen because he is pleasing to God.
God. Notice verse 18, the middle of verse 18 or the end of verse 18. This is my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. And of course, you remember that Jesus or that God had actually echoed those words again when Jesus was what? When he was baptized. And he would say something very similar again when Jesus stood on the mountain of transfiguration where his glory was made apparent for a few moments. This is my beloved son. I am pleased with him. Unlike Israel and unlike us, this servant of the Lord pleased his master in every way imaginable. He never, ever let his master down. In one of the Isaiah passages that we read, he said, the Lord, the, the servant says, the Lord has opened my ear. I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. Even when his Lord called him to give his back to those who beat and his cheeks to those who pull out the beard, he obeyed his Lord. He opened his ear to God's word all the way. He was pleasing to the Father. The Father does not merely say about the servant, he has done what's right. In other words, he's characterized by bare obedience. He said about the servant, he's my beloved. I'm well, my soul is happy with him. I'm well pleased with him. In other words, this servant was not merely under the master for fear of threatening or beating, this was a servant who loved his master, who did his master's will from the heart in every way, even when it was, it seemed apparent to everyone that his master had abandoned him. He committed his soul to his master in faith and hope and love. He was well pleasing to God. In other words, on the one hand, he was not like the prodigal son who disobeyed the master, but also on the other hand, he was not like the older son in that story. Remember the older son? He was not like the older son who stayed home and technically served the father, but not from his heart, whose heart was hard against the father. In other words, the older son was actually a picture of the Pharisees who did not see themselves as the wicked sinners. They were, in Jesus' story, the quote-unquote good brother who did everything right, but were not. their hearts were not one with the Father. For when the Father rejoiced that His lost Son had come home, their hearts were angry and bitter. Right? But here is one who is neither like the prodigal nor like the son who came home, but the only son who obeyed the master, who loved him from his heart. And everything that he did during his whole earthly life was done in submission, in joyful, happy submission to God the Father, his, his master, as it were. The third characteristic of the servant that Matthew sees in Jesus is that he is spirit-endowed. Notice the middle of verse 18. The prophecy of Isaiah is, I will pour, I will put my spirit upon him. There is an unprecedented, 
unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon our Lord, who is the, the, that Spirit is the seal of God's choice and God's approval of Jesus, the Messiah. And that was pictured even in the baptism. We saw that the Holy Spirit came down from heaven like a dove and manifested the approval of God, the choice of God of this person as his servant, as his uh, son in whom he is well pleased. In fact, in the next paragraph that we'll look at, Lord willing, next week, we're going to see, in fact, that it is the Spirit who bears witness to Christ through the miracles, and the Pharisees are actually in danger of knowingly blaspheming the testimony of the Holy Spirit with regard to Christ. It is the Spirit poured out. I want to tell you the Spirit of God was upon the Savior as He walked this earth unlike anything else or anyone else in all of human history. He had an unprecedented outpouring, an unprecedented communion with the Spirit of God. Just think about your communion with the Spirit of God and how fickle it is, how often you grieve that Spirit who dwells within you, how often you feel a lack of power to do what you know you ought to do or to refrain from what you know you should not do. But here is one who walked in the full measure of the Holy Spirit. This is one who we can just scarcely imagine the kind of wholehearted devotion to God that he had in the face of temptation, in the face of trial, the kind of communion and power that he had from the Holy Spirit. Um, In Isaiah chapter 44, our Lord uses the imagery of water in the desert to talk about the Spirit of God that would be poured out on the servant of the Lord. Here's the way it goes. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour out water on a thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. God said, I'm going to pour out my spirit on my servant like rivers of water in the desert. And wherever the rivers flow, the grass grows and the trees flourish. Um, I've mentioned before, I grew up in the desert in Phoenix, Arizona, and if you fly in over Phoenix and you look down, you will see acres and acres and miles and miles of brown. Everywhere you look, brown. Your front yard is brown, unless you put rocks in it of different colors, which people do. You don't have grass, you have just desert. But you'll also notice as you look out that plain window, everywhere the rivers run, there are ribbons of green. There's life, there's flourishing. That's the image that the Lord is using. I'm going to pour out my spirit. And when I pour out my spirit, that is where life will flourish. And that pouring out, that outpouring of the spirit finds its epicenter in the Son of God, in the Messiah, in the servant of Jehovah. That outpouring of the spirit would come upon him and then through him, to all those who are united to Him and from them out into the world to make the whole world a new Garden of Eden, as it were. This is God's plan. And Jesus Christ, the servant who
who pleased him in every way, is at the very center of it. Without Jesus Christ, there is no hope for this broken world. This world will die of a death of, of being separated from the source of life. It'll, the whole world is a world of desert and death. But when Christ comes, there is a fountain of life and hope. Jesus Himself stood in the temple and said, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John says he was talking about the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given because he had not yet been glorified, but the Spirit was upon him. And when he ascended into heaven, he poured out the Holy Spirit in an unprecedented way upon his people. And now that Spirit is flowing to the farthest corners of the earth and the darkness is being made light, and death is being uh, overcome, and life is taking root in every tribe and nation on the face of the earth. And this is leads right into, um, uh, well, before I get to that, just to just remind you that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about how Adam, the first Adam, you know, the one at the very beginning, the first man that God ever made, God breathed the Spirit into him, and he came to life. But then Paul says the last Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is a life-giving spirit. spirit. The spirit it not only comes into him, uh, he is so one with the Father and the Spirit that the Spirit flows from him. He pours out the Spirit upon his people and such is the blessing of all of those who are united to Christ. Listen to me, you're, you're, you are a recipient of the blessing of the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. Through the outpouring of the Savior, the servant of Jehovah, He pours out upon you the spirit of conviction, a spirit of teaching, the spirit of power, the spirit that gives you the gifts to serve the body of Christ. He pours out upon you the spirit of assurance who speaks to your hearts and, and affirms in your heart that you belong to God and you cry out, Abba, Father, that spirit who is the down payment, the earnest, the guarantee of your eternal reward until you finally acquire possession of it. He is the reminder that you belong to the age to come. The spirit is in you. He is the spirit of utterance, that spirit who would open our mouths, who would cause the gospel to flow out around the world like Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. My Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And this is because the Spirit of the Lord was God's... I'm sorry, the servant of the Lord was God's greatest Spirit-filled witness. And that leads us into the fourth thing to note about Him, which is that He proclaims God's truth to the nations. Look at the end of verse 19. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. The servant of the Lord will speak, not just... Uh, well, he'll speak. He'll speak what is, what is true, what is just, what is good. He'll proclaim. He'll proclaim the good news of God's kingdom, that kingdom of peace and justice and holiness and love all around the world. And he'll do it through his... Followers, That proclamation was not merely for Israel, but for all of the nations. We read earlier, the Lord says to his servant, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light to the, 
to the nations, and my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I tell you, friends, Christ will not be content until God's glory, the glory of His Father, is spread across the globe to every ethnicity on the planet. He will make disciples of all nations through His people. He proclaims God's truth to the nations. And because that is His mission, we must never rest while that mission is not fully complete. We must work. There is work for us to do as the body of Christ, as the extension of the servant of Jehovah in carrying on that mission to the nations of the world. This is why it is so important that we go from where we are, that we send people out from this assembly, that we support brothers and sisters who are called to that work from wherever they may be, those like-minded brothers, and send them out and encourage them and bless them and provide for them because the servant of the Lord proclaims God's truth to the nations. And like our Messiah, we must be humble and self-sacrificing in that work. And we see that the servant, number five, is not quarrelsome or self-promoting. Notice verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That was the prediction. And of course, you see it in Jesus' life. He didn't come to score points against the Pharisees. He came to seek the lost, those who knew that they were sick. He didn't come to heal those who had no need for healing. He didn't come to lift up Himself. But He came so that the Father might lift Him up and glorify Him. He didn't come with outward, mighty power like an earthly king, overcoming His enemies, promoting Himself He came to lay down his life. And for Jesus, that meant sort of lying low until the Father's time, until what Jesus called his hour, when the Father would choose to glorify him, to lift him up. That lifting up of Christ would ironically be his crucifixion and also his exaltation into glory. And we servants of the Lord, small s, are supposed to follow the example of the servant of the Lord. So the scripture says to us, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That was the servant of the Lord. And that's the mission of all of His servants. The gentleness of the servant of the Lord is especially manifest, though, with broken people. And this is the sixth thing that we see in verse number 20. A bruised reed He will not break, and a smoldering wick He will not quench. The servant of the Lord is gracious with the broken Just look at him there. He's healing broken people, isn't he? He's finding people who are outcasts in their society, who are excluded from the house of God, and he's calling them to himself. 
and he's restoring them and renewing them. He's putting his hand on them, and rather than their uncleanness imputed to them, his perfection is imputed to them, and they're made whole, and they're restored once again to full communion with the people of God. Look at him, kind and tender-hearted, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, and hearing to the deaf. And by the way, that's what he wants to do for them spiritually. He's healing their bodies, but this is supposed to be a picture, just a little taste of what he can, will do for them also spiritually. So Isaiah 42 verse 19 talked about the spiritual deformity of the people of Israel when it said, Who is blind but my servant and deaf like my messenger? But here comes the servant who is not deaf, whose ears are open to the Lord, and he touches the ears of those who are physically deaf and brings hearing and brings sight to the blind, and he brings not only physical sight, but he brings spiritual sight. Remember the story of the man born blind? And Jesus heals him, and then the Pharisees don't like it at all, and they question him, were you really blind? They ask his mama, was he really blind when he was born? You know, and, and at the end of it, Jesus says this, it's because you say to yourself, we see that you're guilty. He realized he was blind. That's why he was healed. Jesus says, I come for people who know that they're blind, who know that they're deaf, who know that they're broken, who know that they're sinful. Those are the people that I reach out to. It's not the people who think, I'm okay. I've got it all together. I'm better than the next guy. It's people who say, I can't see, help. And he comes down and he says, all right, I understand. And he touches them and he heals them. The Savior is so gentle. You know, the reeds that it's talking about here, the broken reeds, reeds are used in the Bible for measuring things. Um, sometimes for leaning on or for propping things up. So if you've got a broken reed, <laughs> you know, what good is that? You throw it to the side. You throw it in the fire. Start kindling your fire. But the Savior, I tell you today, the Savior doesn't cast off those who are messed up. He doesn't dismiss those who know that they're broken. And when he sees the faintest little flicker of humble faith, that little smoldering wick, he doesn't put it out, but he bends down and he breathes on it so that it flames to life. The Lord is merciful to those who are broken by sin and by all of its effects. He's humble and patient and gracious. And if you're here today broken by your own sinfulness or broken by the fall and all of the curse around you, I want you to look at this text and see your Savior who goes out of His way to find broken people, who loves them, 
and who restores them. People who say, Lord, help, I need you. And here's the last thing. He does not give up until he succeeds. Amen? He doesn't give up until he succeeds in the purpose for which he came. Look at the end of verse 20. Until, you see the word until? He does all of these things until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. The expanded version back in Isaiah, the original, is even more explicit. Matthew summarizes here. It says this, He, the servant of the Lord, will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. How many of you have ever decided to do something good and you started out really well and it got hard and there was lots of opposition and you finally found yourself sort of falling back from it? Here's the Savior who was opposed at every turn with far greater opposition and temptation than you or I will ever understand because we give in to it, so we don't feel the full weight of it. But he was opposed at every turn, and yet he persevered, he persevered, he persevered in spite of incredible temptation, he persevered in spite of incredible opposition, in spite of apparent abandonment from his Father in heaven, he persevered, obedient to the Master, all the way to the end, and he will persevere until he brings all of God's purposes true to fruition. Oh, what a hope this is. This is my constant hope that he who began the work will continue it. You can see this in his earthly life, how he persevered and his obedience culminated even out in the suffering of Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Your salvation depended on Christ's perseverance, his obedience all the way to the end. And he will be relentless in his pursuit of you if you belong to him. And he will be relentless in his pursuit of people from every tribe and nation on the face of the earth. And he will not rest until God's unfolding purposes for the history of all humanity are fully and finally realized. When righteousness and justice cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. This is what the text says. He will continue until he brings justice to victory. He will not rest until the promise to the purposes are fulfilled and you yourself will be kept by His faithful, ever-pursuing love. Unbounded love. Unfailing love. Love raised upon a tree. Unending love. Prevailing love. The Savior's sovereign love for me. Now remember this as we close. All of these graces of the servant of the Lord. Righteousness, the Spirit of God, gentleness, perseverance, are all yours 
if you are united to Him. If you are identified, are you? Are you identified with Jesus Christ through faith? Are you united to Him in baptism? If you are a believer in the servant of the Lord, then when God looks down at you, listen to me, He doesn't see faithless Israel, but He sees the one true Israelite. He does not look down and see a disobedient servant, but He does look down and He sees you in the person of His Son and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Not because of you, but because of Him, the servant of Jehovah. Bless His name and all that comes from it and through it. Amen. Pray with me now. O Lord God, we glory in the name of Jesus Christ alone. He's our hero. He's our representative. If we don't have Christ, Lord, then we know we have no hope in Your presence. But we bless You for the servant who obeyed the Master all the way to the bitter end, that we might receive all of the benefits of His obedience. We bless the one who went out and fought the enemy on our behalf, who vanquished our foes so that we might enjoy the peace of victory, a relationship with You. We bless you, we bless you for the one who went up to that hill of Calvary and obeyed all the way. He won our souls for you, and we glory in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.